Dogs Picnic Day. Again. We'll study 2 Samuel, David. Then we'll have our worship assembly together, and then we'll go have a picnic. All right, review, that's what I'm looking for. David's first capital was in blank, but now he has moved to blank. Where was his first capital? What city? How do you, how do you pronounce it? Hebron, that's how I call it, Hebron. Some call it Hebron, 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 H-E-B-R-O-N, that's where it was. Do you remember how he got to Hebron, why he went to Hebron? He asked the Lord, where, where should I go? And God said, go to Hebron. God told him, go to Hebron. But after Hebron, where did he move? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. How did he get the city of Jerusalem? Who do you have to take it from? It was the Jebusites. The Jebusites had the site for Jerusalem, I guess you could say. He took it from them, moved there. Now here's... Here's the mathematical question. How long was he in Hebron and how long was he in Jerusalem? Seven. Seven in Hebron and then the rest of his time, which was a total of 40 years, so you do the math, was in Jerusalem. So, once in Jerusalem, he took more blanks and blanks. What did he already have seven of when he moved to Jerusalem? He had seven wives, and when he got to Jerusalem, he took more wives and took more concubines. Yeah, things were different. And never seems to be a situation where that proved all that helpful. I just think when Jesus went back in Matthew 19 to the original plan of one man, one woman, he was saying, this is the way it needs to be. That's the best way. Number three, what did all Israel do in Jerusalem regarding David? Just a clue. It had already been done. They anointed him. They anointed him. But the thing was in Jerusalem, well, who had anointed him previously? Samuel had anointed him to be king. But now the people are saying, we go along with that. We want to anoint you king. Uh, It doesn't say, but to me it seems like it was a show of faith. We believe in you. We want you to reign over us. We're taking action to show everybody we want you to be our king. And so all Israel came to Jerusalem and anointed David king there. That was a big deal. Who attacked as soon as David became king? And how did David respond? This is in chapter 5, by the way. And it's, it's fair to read. You don't have to do this by memory. That's not cheating to read. The Philistines, the Philistines attacked. They assembled themselves when they heard David became king. And what did, what's the first thing David did when he saw that the Philistines had arrayed themselves against him? He asked God how he should go about it. And then later, they would later come back. He whooped them that time. And then they came back and he did the same thing. He asked God, got a different plan but he still asked God. We won't talk about that 
this morning, but we will talk about that, good Lord willing, in time. We'll talk about the fact that David spent a lot of time uh, asking God what to do, and the times he got in trouble were the times he did not ask God what to do. There's a great lesson in that for me and you, I believe. All right. Who are Joab, Abner, Ishbosheth, and Mephibosheth? Anybody want to take a shot at any one of those guys? Pick one. Who are they? Relatives of Saul? All right. Well, is, is Joab a relative of Saul? Okay. Well, who was Joab if he wasn't a relative of Saul? He was the captain of David's army. That's who Joab was, captain of David's army. Uh, next, Abner. He was the captain of Saul's army. So we got these two captains. By the way, by this time, what's happened to Abner? Saul murdered him. He, he killed him. It, yeah, I mean, murder, kill. It looks like murder to me because it was in stealth and he... Uh, he wasn't being up and open about it. It wasn't like we're going to condemn this guy because he's done something bad. He just kills him. Yes. What did I say? Oh, yes, Joab. Joab. Joab killed Abner. I'm sorry. Yeah, Saul wouldn't have done that. <laughs> and thank you for calling my hand on that because uh, I probably told you that story about the guy that was preaching and he was preaching about Adam and Eve and Every time he said Adam and Eve, the congregation would snicker a little bit. So after the sermon was over, he asked his wife, Sweetheart, why, why didn't everybody laugh when I said Adam and Eve? He said, You didn't say Adam and Eve. You said Tarzan and Jane. <laughs> you know, you get something in your head, sometimes it's hard to get it out. Uh, Ishbosheth. Who is he? Saul's son, one of his sons, by one of his what? Yes, Abner made Ishbosheth king. Exactly, bingo. And then later on, what would happen to Ishbosheth? He would be murdered by two guys who should have been on his side, and they apparently thought they would get in good with David. Now that David has come to power, and so they took his head to David. And what did David do? He killed them. Man, tough times. Mephibosheth. Who was Mephibosheth? Son of Jonathan. And who is Jonathan? Jonathan is Saul's son and Mephibosheth is Jonathan's son. And he was lame. Do you remember how he became lame? Okay. When... When word came that Saul and Jonathan had been killed, his nursemaid, his nanny, I guess, uh, picked him up to run with him in panic, apparently, and he fell and became lame in his feet. But he did all right. Who's Hiram, and what did he do for David? What's that? Timber and wood came and built David a house in Jerusalem. He was uh, king of Tyre, I believe he was. And they had plenty of resources, and he brought them down. And that's a 
It's a wise man who recognizes a good man who becomes king and, and does for him. That's what Hiram did. That's who he was. All right. What's left to cover? Because we've got, including this morning, we've only got four Sundays left. And I know I've been racing through First and Second Samuel. Uh, but here's what we've got coming up. In chapter 6 and 7, we're going to talk about the ark. We'll, we'll read through that here in a little bit, Lord willing, and talk about Uzzah and, and the coming temple that kind of resulted as uh, all that fiasco there. And then 8 through 10, David's going to beat his, his enemies, put them uh, in their place, and bring Mephibosheth into the royal house to honor uh, Jonathan's memory and Saul's family. And then 11 to 12, we've got the the horrible situation with Bathsheba and David's repentance. And then God says, all right, you've done this and I've forgiven you, but, but there's going to be punishment to come. And it's going to be a threefold punishment. Uh, the sword's not going to depart from your house. You're going to have strife in your family. It's, it's going to be a mess. You're going to be publicly humiliated. And this little boy that you and Bathsheba have conceived will die. But then when that little boy dies, what happens? God gives him and Bathsheba Solomon. Very interesting how this all works out and comes about and then chapters 13 to 18 is the situation with Amnon and Tamar Amnon there's a lot of families I'm sorry does anybody have a question or comment Amnon and Tamar are half brother half sister but Amnon just falls in love with her and so he he forces her and then Absalom gets a vendetta against him and and comes secretly later years later and kills him and so there's an estrangement that goes on there, and Absalom's finally brought back in through Joab's influence, and Absalom rebels against David, runs David out of Jerusalem. And then Joab is the one who kills Absalom out in the woods, and David's restored as king. The whole sordid mess, and it all seems to spring from David's sin with Bathsheba. It was all there originally. It's, it's like, yeah, there's the seeds of that, but that's what got it all started and it makes me wonder makes me question myself how much difficulty have I had in my life because I'm the one who planted the seeds to start with uh, just by thinking and doing and saying all the things I shouldn't think and do and say anyway that seems to be how it worked out there and you got to wonder why is this stuff in here why does God write out this this history if not for us to to learn something about it on the spiritual level on our relationship with, uh, based on our relationship with him and, and what's right and what's wrong. It's not just facts. It's facts for a purpose, for a reason. All right, chapters 19 through 20, we've got David restored as king, but then Sheba revolts. It's like the, yeah, I told you, there's always going to be strife. So even though you're restored as king, Absalom's put down, Sheba's going to rise up, there's going to be another guy. And then there's this question of justice for Gideon because Saul had done evil to the people of Gideon. And so God says, all right, now it's time to make that right. So David, you're going to be the guy that makes Saul's sins right with the people of Gibeon. And seven of Saul's sons, his offspring, are hanged uh, as a result for that. Justice was hard. And we might look now today and say, well, that's just too hard, too harsh. But where is God in all of this? We might just see what happens physically, but God is there for all the spiritual. He knows what he's going to do with the souls of those boys, and he knows what he's going to do uh, about their situation and with regard to their relationship with him, if there was one at all or ever would have been. I have learned 
even though I might have questions, I don't question God with the sense of who do you think you are. I question God with, wow, that's interesting. I wonder why you did that. That's, that's the kind of question I ask anymore. When you learn you're not very smart and God is, you, you change your spirit about your approach to him. So, And then chapter 24, the census, which is it's very interesting. We'll read about that, Lord willing. Uh, God provoked David to do this, but the outcome was this sacrifice at the threshing floor of Ornan. What did the threshing floor of Ornan become? That became the location for the temple. That's where they built the temple. So it's kind of, I don't know if you want to say poetic, but there's something about it. This horrible sin that David commits that has to be stopped with the sacrifice. And when it stops, thousands of Israelites have already been killed by the plague that was sent as a result of the sin. And yet there's someone there, and it's David, the man after God's own heart, who stops the plague and secures a place of worship for God. And whose offspring is Jesus, according to Scripture? He's of the offspring of the house of David. God says, I'm going to establish your throne. Back in chapter 6, when David said, I want to build you a house. Chapter, chapter 6 and 7, God said, well, I didn't ask for a house, but you can build one, but actually not you, Solomon can build one, but here's what I'm going to do, God says. God says, I'm going to build your house. And David will talk about this later uh, in, in the, a couple chapters down the line, talk about the fact that God's, wow, who am I that you're going to build my house? And David seems to understand what God's talking about, that this isn't about a place in Jerusalem. This is about the kingdom of God and the Messiah coming through him and establishing his name as in connection with, with God's eternal kingdom. All right, observations, questions? Just want to kind of give you a, a little scope of what's coming up. Uh, if, if, if the Lord doesn't come back until we get through this month. All right, where are we here? So readings. Second uh, Samuel chapter 6, 1 through 5. And then 6, 6 through 11. Who wants the first five verses of 2 Samuel 6? Have I, have I bored you to tears sufficiently so that you don't want to read now? All right, Bob's got the first five verses. Who will take 6 through 11? All right, Shannon, uh, let's go ahead and read those two. Well, no, no let's, let's get a reader for First Chronicles 15. There's just a handful of verses there in two different places. <clears throat> but we need to read that as a commentary on the first 11 verses of chapter 6. So who will get the first Chronicles reference? All right, Rich, thank you. Let's do these three readings and then we will move on. Now David became head of the men of Israel, 30,000. David arose and went up with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the, by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. They placed the ark of God on a new cart, that they might bring it up from the house of Abinadab, uh, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Ahio was walking ahead of the cart. 
Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments, made of fir wood, and with lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Macon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen had stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because it was a reverent act, and therefore God struck him down and he died beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come with me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. All right. Now, Richard's going to read just a second from First Chronicles 16. What's it say David's response is when he sees what happens to Uzzah? He's afraid. Why would he be afraid? Duh, somebody just died. What did David not do before they loaded up that cart and headed for Jerusalem? He didn't ask God anything about this. Apparently, there's no record of his saying, what should we do, Lord, about moving the ark to Jerusalem? He just kind of took it upon himself, apparently, to do this, and this is the outcome. It's like, oh, man, what, what have I done? God killed a guy. I'm in charge of this. So... There we are with that. Now, Rich, First uh, Chronicles chapter 15. The city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, No one is to carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord chose them to carry the ark of God and to minister to him forever. And David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark, of the Lord to its place which he had prepared for it. 11 to 15, right? Yes. Uh, then David called all the priests. Okay. <laughs> Heads of the fathers, households of the Levites, consecrate yourselves, both you and your relatives, that God, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it at the first, the Lord our God made an outburst on us, for we did not seek him according to the ordinance. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, God of Israel. The sons of the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with poles thereon, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. All right. So they bring up the ark. And there's an incident. Uzzah touches it and he dies. And remember the circumstance. If you go back and what Bob read about who was, who was involved in bringing the ark on that cart. Man, they, they had a whole parade. They had musicians. They had a band. It was a big party. Everything was going great. And then God strikes Uzzah dead. It's like. That's got to be a, a huge point of humiliation for one thing, for David, but also now for fear. But who does David justify in the whole thing? Who does he vindicate? God. He collects himself and he says, all right, wait a minute here. We did it wrong. 
He doesn't. This is Old Testament, and it's supposed to be our schoolmaster today. Yes. We should be afraid of what God's going to do. Sure. If we don't stay close to His Word and obey and everything, I don't care how much influence we get from the outside or what, we've got to stay on the straight and narrow way or God's going to take over and we're going to be lost. Right. That's why Paul writes the church of Corinth. Therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men there's something terrible about God. What we do, what we say, and how we assemble to worship God, the lack of irreverence. You know, I'm going to say this and I'm going to jump in with both feet. Okay? I have gone in to different congregations and they have more a reverence attitude toward God than we do here. Yeah. And that's a shame. Yeah, I'll So we need to be really careful. As a touch the ark, we're supposed to be God's workers and His followers. There's a balance. Uh, I've experienced the same thing. I've also gone in places that were so straight it was cold. You don't want both. You don't want an extreme on one hand or the other. You want you want the grace of God, the love of God, the compassion of God, but you also want regard for God. You want piety. Uh, we don't hear the word piety much anymore. We want holiness. Everything in our culture has become so casual, we get the idea that, well, we can approach God casually also, and there's no truth in that. We do not approach God casually. Anybody see the coronation on Saturday? Boy, what a lot of pomp and circumstance. Followed by the Kentucky Derby. Yeehaw! A lot of pomp and circumstance with that too. And worship to God that we shouldn't have. Well, that's... That's a good possibility. And it, here I'll use this word again. <laughs> it, would, it would behoove, I don't like that word, but it's a good word. It would behoove each one of us to do some self-examination when we assemble. Because our, our culture has also gotten us to the point where we are reticent to focus for any amount of time on any one thing. And you see it all over the place. I, I took pictures. I was going back through some of them when we were in Israel, just on the streets of Jerusalem, riding around in the bus. You look out the window and the people on the street, everybody's, everybody's walking around like this. You see it everywhere. And if, if you go any place, I mean, you're standing in line at McDonald's and people are, what are they doing on their phone? Well, they might be ordering on McDonald's. But this is, this is the thing everybody's focused to. And it's not like they're watching a 45-minute video on, on educating. It's, like, it's got to be a three-minute. I don't watch anything. If, three minutes? That's a long time, man. You know how that is. We just kind of get accustomed to that. And so to come in and to sit somewhere 
and think about God together for an hour, that, that can be a challenge to a people whose culture is training them to do otherwise. Bob? I'm sorry? Aw. Aw. We, you know, we, we use the word awesome so much. We trivialized, and we don't realize that when we are dealing with God, it should be like we are dealing with a F5 tornado. Absolutely. Uh, that is the same sense of awe. You know, it's actually, it has no comparison. The tornado is so much tamer than the creator who made the tornado. But, but we, we've lost that in, in the last few decades. Awe. And, and you hear the word amazing. It's like every other word is ama- everything's amazing. And when everything's amazing, well, nothing's really amazing. But it just gets like, wow, where, where are we? And you got to get away and you got to think about things. You got to spend some time in meditation. That's not Eastern stuff. That's meditation is just thinking about things. And we got to do some more of that. Preston? I got this example about the F5 tornado. And I agree with that to a point. And I've struggled with this in my life. And my brother, he goes to church down in Pima. We had a discussion about this, about fearing the Lord. And about the passage, perfect love casts out fear. And I think there's a balance there that we we, we got to realize that God is love. And so we, we need to think about the perfect love casts out fear. Yes, we need to understand that He has given us an example. He came and said these things. And so He's given us what we need to do and then showed us how to do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like He just. Blessed us to figure it out. And in life, you encounter the fear of God. You know, you messed up and then you know that you get all the things that go with not knowing what God says. And then you humble yourself and you ask for forgiveness and you draw closer to God and you draw closer to that perfect love and then you cast out fear. So I think, I mean, I go back and forth with a, I've got a healthy fear of God. I've got a healthy fear of dying, and then I think about the passage that our, in, 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 in the Old Testament talks about the man's death, uh, death and the death of his heart. Is something I always think about the streets of gold that are so clear that we can see through it. I mean, we just haven't got an idea of the awe of what he's talking about. He can't explain it. It's too well on to think about it, and if we throw as Christians, we draw towards that perfect love. We have emotion. God has given it to us as a gift. But the emotion should spring from the intellect. When you have a realization of the greatness of something, that's when the awe and the awesomeness should come. And some things like a storm will impress on us without us having to think about it, a sense of power. But when you stop and think about one being who speaks and our physical universe comes into being, it's, it's just here. That's, that's pretty awesome. And that our physical universe isn't even the beginning of 
where God is or what God is, that he, there was something so much infinitely greater than our universe before the universe was spoken into existence, and God is the one who rules there. I have trouble fixing breakfast. And he speaks the universe into existence, and my tendency is still to question him. What do you mean by doing it? How, do you, how can you allow this? And the, the sense of awe and, and intimate uh, relationship have to come together somehow because that's what we have. With, that's what he wants. That's why he sent Jesus. He sent his spirit into our hearts. You have the spirit of God in you if you are in Christ. And that spirit unites you with him. But it doesn't, it doesn't give us the right to be disrespectful or impious in any way, shape, or form. Steve and then Charles. I just wanted to read something that uh, talks about what we've been talking about. It's a prediction about Christ, but listen. Uh, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from the fruit shall bear fruit. Now... And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Now, what is the Spirit of the Lord? The Spirit of the Lord is the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of the Lord is the Spirit of counsel and might. And the Spirit of the Lord is the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And guess what Christ put emphasis on? And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Even though it said that he'll have all wisdom and understanding and might, Christ's glory in the fear of the Lord. In other words, the way I see it here is that he obeyed God to the fullest because that was his delight, was to serve and do the will of the Father, even with all these other things. So, well, I won't use that illustration. I don't think it would illustrate as well. But power is what we're talking about. We're talking about power, and power not just in the sense of physical power, but power in the sense of authority. He rules. He reigns. He is the supreme force and has the supreme right and is always right. If we could ever point at God and say, well, he did something wrong here. This was immoral. This shouldn't have happened. This was unjust. But you can't ever do that. Everything he's ever done is just and moral and right. And if you could measure the intellectual value, his actions would always have the highest intellectual value. There's nothing better that could have been done at the time than what he did with who he had and what the situation was. That's God. That's why it's easy to trust him when you come to believe that okay number one he's got my best interest at heart and there's nobody who can serve my interest better than god that might sound selfish but it's not selfish it's the reality of the situation if you need a doctor do you want the best doctor you can find however that doctor's going to work on you it might be something different than what you're thinking a doctor should do but if you know oh he's the best doctor he's going to choose for me what actually works then why would you have any problem with that unless you have a preconceived notion about what a doctor is supposed to be? You go to somebody who knows, and here's the thing. 
If you can look and say, wait a minute, this, look at all these people that this doctor's treated and look how well they're doing now. I think that's the guy I need to go to. You, you make your choice based on the evidence. And when you look at God, you see God is the one who has always done well. His people make dumb choices, but he's always done well and he's always been fair. So here's David. Who is David? He's a man after God's own heart. But man, he messed up this time. He forgot to seek out God's heart in moving the ark. There's a lesson there. Who dies? Not David. Uzzah dies. Is that fair? Well, who touched the ark? (laughs) Did Uzzah know that? Should Uzzah have known that? This is the ark of God. Uzzah is the son of who? He's the son of the guy who's been taking care of the ark. Somebody should have educated that boy. He should have known. Maybe he did know. And it doesn't give us any commentary on that. Was this an oversight? Did he just panic? What happened? We don't know. What happened with his soul? All of us have been moving stuff and just start to fall. And your instinct just sticks hands up and stop it. Sure. I think it's just an oversight. Looks to me like you just instinct, you know. The, 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 the oversight was putting it on the cart in the first place. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Did you all know that actresses can fly? <laughs> if you don't have a strap on your pickup, right? Don't ask me. They can fly. And, and then who do you think is supposed to feel stupid when that happens? Yeah, that's the way that works. Man, I, I missed something. And you just come back and you collect yourself. Okay, we're going to do it right next time. Charles, I'm sorry. Oh, <clears throat> I had a conversation with Isaac. We were talking about Old versus New Testament. And he asked me from a point of a beginner. He, he was saying, is God mean? Or is God nice? And I thought about that for a second. And the, the decision that I've come to, and I'm, it's evolving, it's changing, you know. But I see God the way that Jesus described him as God the Father. And when I think of a father, a good father, I think of someone that I can come to with my problems and speak with them like an old friend and laugh with and have coffee with and have a great time together whom I also fear and respect. Someone that I would never cross. Someone that I try very hard not to disappoint. You know, I I don't see any reason why it it can't be both. Sure. And the one thing that God is obligated to do, well, I would say the one thing, one thing I want to talk about at this point was he's obligated to be just. And so we can ask about being mean or being nice, but justice is justice. One of the problems in our nation right now is the injustice. And I'm not talking about social justice. When you throw the word social in there, you've eliminated the justice aspect of it. Justice is justice. What is right? God will always do what is right. Sometimes what is right will appear mean. Sometimes what is right will appear very nice. 
But justice is what God is all about. And it's interesting, when David gets his kingdom established, that's what we'll read in, in the next couple of chapters, that David judges from Jerusalem and he establishes righteousness and justice among the people. So we're back to this idea of this guy who makes all these mistakes is still a man who comes back to square one to what's right and he establishes what's right. So, yeah, he's a man after God's own heart. All this continues to give me hope because I know I, I stray from what's right. I mess up. I make mistakes. But I can choose to come back to square one, and that's what David seemed to do all the time. He made the choice. He didn't get his nose out of joint. Well, I'm offended uh, personally. My ego's hurt. My pride is hurt. No, it's not about that. It's about God who is the righteous judge. What does he say? What should I do with regard to him? And, and that's what David always seemed to come back to. Bruce? Sin and uh, name everyone with David and tell him he's the one and go through it. And he, it's funny because the child takes sick and he prays and prays and prays. Mm-hmm. Once that child dies, he gets up, worships himself, and worships God. Right? Yeah, yeah. read about that chapter 12, what Bruce is talking about. You have already. David's response when that little boy that he and Bathsheba have conceived gets sick and Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Get that part about the deal. My verse says he was angry with God because of not dying. You know, getting killed. But after that other incident, he washes himself, cleans up, eats, and worships God. So. So, has anyone in here ever had an emotion that you felt that you found out later was unjustified? Duh. And that's where David was. And that's what God is wanting us to do. Okay, Marty, think about it. Think about it. Just take a little time. Think about it. You know, uh, in the situation with Bezza, he broke God's love. God had to do something because he had made a law about touching the ark. So he could not do something. <coughs> and he didn't say Uzzah was a rotten guy. No. He just, okay, here's what i got to do now. Because I, I said I would do this, so I have to do that. He, he's, not, he's the judge. And he's the executioner. But what happened with Uzzah's soul? Well, we don't know what happened with his soul. Uzzah made a wicked, oh man, what's happening? Oh, it's alright Uzzah. You just, you, you man, you messed up. You touched the ark. Here you are with me now, but Everything's going to be okay. Later on, they'll get the ark into Jerusalem. You know, if any of that could have ever had, it's just the idea that that doesn't necessarily mean that us is burning in hell like we get the, the, the picture. Who knows? That's in God's hands. Are you willing to trust God with us as soul? Well, sure, us as soul. Are you willing to trust him with your soul? Yeah. Like you said, whenever uh, they didn't ask God and then they decided they needed to, and just like when... God said, I don't need you to build me a house, but go ahead. And I think that's where we're at. Whenever we mess up, we need to go back and study and pray about it so that we can get to going. You know, if we can be so scared, we're just scared to live life. Right. We, you know, it talks about Proverbs, making, I think Proverbs, where, you know, we do what God says and He'll make our paths great. To me, now I don't want to take that as But that means to me we still have. To live life and make decisions, but we need to do it with God 
uh, into control of our lives so we can get to go ahead and do what he, what we want to do. Right. Kind of like David. God didn't need him to do that, but he wanted to. And so here's they want to do something. Not something that necessarily God told him to, but he said, go ahead. You know, I'll bless it. You know, mm-hmm. And make the passage great. You know, he got the tool. Right. right. And, and he did that through the prophet Nathan. Sent Nathan to tell David. Go tell David this. It's like, oh, he's going to listen to, to Nathan because Nathan is my prophet. So always be open to the, the leading of God. You won't hear a voice in the night that says, Marty, go do this. I'm God. It's okay. Go do it. You won't hear that. But if you ask him, he will find a way to lead you. He will find a way to guide you. He, he knows ways. He doesn't have to find ways like we have to find things. Let's see, how am I going to do that? He already knows, but we'll, we'll discover it. We'll determine it. Why else would we pray such a prayer? Lord, help me to do this. Help me to do that. What do you, what do you expect him to do? Anything? Yeah, well, duh. How's he going to do it? Well, that's up to him. Is it okay if he decides and not you? Yeah. What do you want? You want the outcome. You want the outcome of your life to be glorifying to him. You can't have a better outcome for your life than for your life to glorify God. Has there been two bells? No, there's been two bells. All right, well, okay, we'll have to stop. We didn't get too far with those readings, did we? Lord willing, next week. There's always next week until there's not. Bless you. Thank you.